Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, guest hosted by award-winning novelist and teacher George Hovis, we visit with Clyde Edgerton, the well-known and well-loved North Carolina author of 10 novels, a book of advice, a memoir, short stories, and essays. As well as being a New York Times bestselling author and a member of the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame, among other prestigious writing awards, he's an accomplished artist, musician, pilot, and teacher of creative writing. And even more than that, he spins a good yarn and knows how to have a good laugh. He says funny and tragic family stories on both sides of his family, but especially on his mother's, were gifts to his profession as a fiction writer and thus helped him make a living on earth, a living that he has thus far enjoyed immensely. Today, we amble among the writings and musings of one of North Carolina's literary treasures and have a laugh along the way. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereadspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Our guest host is George Hovis. As I said, he's, his debut novel, The Skin Artist, was nominated for the 2019 Sir Walter Raleigh Award and was a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Award. It's set in Charlotte, uh, kind of an underbelly story. Uh, you ought to read it. Uh, it's really good. He was on the podcast, too. We've become uh, writing friends, and I invited him to do this uh, show, and he came up with a great idea to invite uh, Clyde. And so here we are. Uh, George, uh, whenever you're – oh, one more thing. Listeners, after this episode's over, we're going to actually jump over to our Patreon channel and George and I are going to kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe get a lesson or two on writing from a North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame bestselling writer. That's Clyde Edgerton. We're going to have some fun doing that. Uh, so that's set up. Uh, George, whenever you're ready, you can welcome Clyde to the show and uh, have some fun. Landis, thank you for this invitation. This is uh, such a, a pleasure. And Clyde Edgerton, it is uh, 
a thrill to get to talk to you here on Charlotte Reader's podcast. I have so many questions about new work, about classic Clyde Edgerton. Um, I'd like to start out with a question about your debut novel, Rainy, which I went back to and reread recently. And I was struck by how Rainy is even more relevant today, given how polarized our society has become. Many of our listeners will recall that Rainy dramatizes the first year of a marriage between a conservative rural North Carolina woman named Rainey and her progressive academic husband from Atlanta, Charles. Clyde, could you talk about how politics enter into a novel like Rainey? Um. Yes, I think I can, um, and I appreciate the question, and I appreciate Landis and you being here. Um, this is a kind of a an unusual event. It's maybe not to you all as much, but to me to be able to talk uh, on, on the what we hope is the tail end of the pandemic about writing and about literature, which somehow seems to have sunk. Speaking of politics, seemed to have sunk to the bottom of the barrel about what we talk about these days. But so it's refreshing to to spend time here. And uh, the question about rainy and politics, uh, I immediately thought the book was about family. But what book about family is not about politics, especially these days? Uh, in a more pronounced way than back then. However, the underlying tensions um, between uh, cultures, uh, subcultures, if we say we've got a big culture here, we've got a lot of little subcultures, we've got all kinds of tension between those subcultures. And it popped out at me, I had some inklings of it, when coming from a rural family with 23 aunts and uncles, uh, I married uh, a, a woman from um, Atlanta with just a few aunts and uncles and we got together and suddenly the you know when a couple gets together pretty soon there are two families sort of coming together and so I it all I'll try not to go on and on but it all popped to me when I was just starting to write fiction and my aunt came into our house my wife and I we, we, we live in 15 miles away and she came in when we weren't home and I didn't think twice about it I mean, when you live in a community that you can throw a baseball from one side to the other and there are 23 aunts and uncles there, you don't think a lot about somebody just walking in your house. So I didn't think about it. But it turned out that my new wife did think about it. And at the standoff, right after it happened, they said something to each other and then they both looked at me. <laughs> and uh, I did the smartest thing, one of the smartest things I've ever done. I just kept my mouth shut. But all the energy welled up in me, and I said, I've got to write about this because I just started writing. And boy, it just you've got to write about it. And I just learned that you can write about your own experience, stuff out of your past. I've been trying to write things. I, I, tried, to, I tried to be the, the painter like that. You've, you've, you've got a canvas, and you've put, put something there that doesn't have anything to do with you. But in this particular, I was just learning that you can write about your experience, you can write about your observation, and you can use your imagination. So whammo. I had a short story, which turned into a novel. Thank you, Clyde, for that. You know, talking about cultures and con conflict, 
politics and family, religion and family can cause conflict. Religion plays an important role in so many of your novels. Back when Rainey was first published, uh, that caused a problem with the administration at Campbell University, where you were teaching then. Louis Rubin once told me he placed you in the tradition of Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy. Uh, in what ways do you see yourself as a religious writer? It's almost like I didn't decide to write about religion. It is such that if you turn loose just a little bit and use some of your own experience, then you have to go on that. And so much of my experience growing up had to do with religion. Uh, you, you know, you're talking four, five services a week, week after week. It's like putting on your clothes. <laughs> it's like putting on socks. You don't think about, hey, I'm going to get up and do something that the rest of the world doesn't do. I'm going to church. You get up, you eat. You go to church for Sunday school, you stay for the service, you come home, you eat chicken, you go back for BTU, B Union, Baptist Training Union. Gosh, it's been a long time. And uh, you go back to that, then you go to Sunday school service, and then you might, depending on how devout a family you are in the community, you might go to Wednesday night prayer meeting. If you're not quite so devout, you'll go once in a while. If you're even less devout, you go, you don't go to Wednesday night. And, and and it keeps going backwards in all these stages to the people who go only to Easter and Christmas. And there are there's no one else left in the community <laughs> after that. So the religion was so powerful to me. And, you know, uh, my mother, who was a religious in a wonderful way, I don't know how, I don't have time to explain it, but she, she, I read these all these stories out of what was Aunt Charlotte's Bible stories. And, you know, if if you're not, if you're a child and there's one magazine that come, is in your house and no books except three or four Bibles, if you're a child and nobody's beating on you and people are nice to you as a child, you you soak up those stories. I mean, who can beat a kid with a slingshot knocking the hell out of some big old guy who's after him? You can't beat that kind of stuff. It's wonderful. And then if you've got what I guess in other cultures has to do with some kind of mystical experience of people going up to heaven and coming back and going around and God walking around on earth and all that, unless there's too much bad stuff with it, it's it's kind of all you have in terms of story. And, and and to be somebody uh, even old as I am, to forget all that is crazy. I just read Ecclesiastes all the way through for almost a uh, – I had read it earlier because I had I had, had two characters to read the Bible for the first time, which was so much fun to pretend I was someone reading it for the first time. I mean, there's so much there that you don't get when you get those little Sunday school quarterlies with the Scripture and the little lesson that you're supposed to read and you're not supposed to read it. Let me tell you, they break it up for you. The Southern Baptists break it up for you. They don't give you a whole book to read. If they gave you Ecclesiastes to, to read, it'd be all over. It, it, <laughs> it, if, if all the teenagers read Ecclesiastes and nothing else, it would be all over. But they give you, you know, um, they don't give you Jesus' well. If that's all they gave you, that wouldn't work either. But they'll give you these little things, and they have little moral lessons. And I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking it. I'm not making fun of it. I, I mean, I have tried not to make a fun make, make fun of because I, I think that is disrespectful and it can be even I, 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 there is some meaning left in the word blasphemous uh, I think for some of us um, anyway I don't know how I got off on that other than to say religion couldn't be not a part of just about anything I've ever written that has to do with 
relationships between characters. Speaking about religion and having some fun, though, I, I recall one passage from the book you held up, Where Trouble Sleeps, involving a conversation between a con artist impersonating Jesus and a church secretary. Uh, I wonder if you might be willing to treat us to a little reading from that passage. Sure, uh, I certainly will. A little bit of background. Miss Clark, uh, Miss Dorothea Clark, has sprained her ankle, and she's a church secretary, and she is uh, having to, uh, she's decided just to live in the church for a while. Over in her office, Mrs. Clark tucked a clean white sheet around the couch cushions. She swallowed several of her capsules with a cup of water, smoothed her hand over the sheet. She felt the very presence of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Lord, in his house. The sheets were so clean and white. In the bathroom, she hooked the latch and took off all her clothes and draped them on a chair. Just like at home, this was something she could do the very same way every time. I come to the garden alone While the dew is still on the roses She dried off real good with the towel, Claude T., her husband had brought. And Back in her office in her pajamas, she hooked the door, then looked through the window down at the blinker light, blinking yellow, lay down on her back on the clean sheet, feeling all clean. She pulled her sheet and blanket over her. Dear Lord, she prayed aloud, thank you for our country and state and the United States and our North American continent. We pray for the sick. On his third try, Jack Umstead found an outside church door that was open. About one in two churches had one door open somewhere, and very often there was a stocked refrigerator in our church, sometimes a full kitchen with crackers and canned goods. And he wasn't beyond going through a trash can or two if there'd been a chicken dinner the night before. You could find whole chicken wings completely untouched, sometimes fried and or barbecued. They'd keep for up to a week. And with his suit, white shirt, and his tie, he knew damn well he could talk his way out of any difficulty. As he stepped into a kind of small office library room, he heard a voice behind a closed door. And we pray for all babies without mothers. We're thankful for our earth, our solar system, the Milky Way, everything in the universe, our beautiful moon, and the universe itself. Help us to love one another and to love Jesus and accept him as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. She heard steps, quiet steps in the library out there, approaching her door. Dear Lord, she thought, could that... It wasn't Mr. Crenshaw's walk or the janitor Andrews or Claude T's, and they were the only ones who... It was a very soft walk. Could that be his own self here in his own house? Did he live here sometimes too? Should she, should she speak? Jesus? Yes. Oh, Jesus, is that you, Jesus? 
Verily, verily it is. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All is well. Do not be afraid. Um, I am uh, come to save the world. She heard a chair being pulled up to the door. This could not be. But what if it was? He had said, believe. Dear Jesus, I have hurt myself, and I'm having to spend a few days in my house. I have, I have bathed and come to bed. But she would already know that. She took a deep breath. She didn't want to faint now. This was really happening. Okay with me, said the voice, said Jesus. Good bathing is a good habit. Did you brush your teeth? I brush them every morning with baking soda. She had dreamed and dreamed of walking in the garden with him alone, but she had always believed she'd have to die first and go to heaven. Now she was actually talking to him through a closed door at the church, and it was taking her breath. It was all true. Make yourself at home, said the voice. And what would, uh, uh, what, what would thy name be? I am Dorothea, Mrs. Claude T. Clark. I am thy servant, O Lord. Did you hear my prayer, O Lord? I sure did. It was a mighty good prayer, too. I, I don't get too many that good. Dorothea tried to picture the face behind the voice. She never liked hair on a man's face, but she'd never questioned Jesus' right to have it. Then it struck her that he might not have a beard. All that had gone on so long ago, back in the Middle Ages, when customs were different. Jesus, do you have a beard? No, I don't, Dorothea. I, I do have a mustache, though. I, uh... I shave when I come to America. <laughs> oh, that's that fun is, to it's fun to read. That is too funny. <laughs> oh, can I say one thing about that? Yeah, I, I always worry a little bit about making fun of Dorothea. That it seems that way, and I mean, I've been accused of accused of making fun of old people in some of my books, and. Uh, now that I'm old, I agree. No, actually, <laughs> I don't. Uh, the, the old people in my family, and I've been around a lot of old people for a long time, I always made fun of each other in, in, in general ways, in ways that are acceptable, I think. So I don't worry about that too much, but I do worry about looking down. On, I mean, you know, punching down rather than punching up is a, something that that is part of the debate about who do we write about, who do we become when we who, how does all that work? And, and a lot of it has to do with punching up and punching down. But Dorothea, I realized in this novel, while I was writing, I, I figured out what it was about, actually, and that's not a good idea. Y'all don't figure that out earlier. But this book had a lot to do with the loyalty in some families, in my experience, Southern families, which extends from a man to his blood family more than to his wife, and from a woman to her blood family more than to her husband. I, I, I think I may have been in a, not in a terrible way, in a family. I was an only child, only living child of, of two parents who had, had, had extraordinary devotion to their blood kin. And I, I, I began to see that in this book, that was part of my, my, my six-year-old's uh, uh, experience that he didn't realize he was having. So Dorothea, though, uh, had two sisters who wouldn't leave their parents. 
and she was the third. And she said, to hell with this. And she got out of there and she married Claude T. And she and she's a hero in the book because of that. Oh, wow. Wow. Thank you, Clyde. You know, it's interesting. That same tension is there in Rainey, right? In the first novel between oh, yeah. Charles Definitely. and Rainey and, yeah, their blood kin. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is, that is a wonderful passage. I always, I love that passage. And it's a wonderful, wonderful novel. Um, you were talking earlier about creation in the time of the pandemic this past year and the challenges, you know, that we've all had uh, from COVID to the George Floyd protests for racial justice to the attacks on the Capitol and our democratic process. How has all of that affected your creative process or your creative expression? I would say in general, in general, it hasn't made much difference, but that doesn't mean it's not an interesting question. I, 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 of course, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged in many ways um, as, a, as, as being white, as being um, male, in some ways being older. So it didn't hurt me the way it hurts so many people, uh, and, and nor my family. And the isolation at first I, I embraced, I, it was great. I was working. But then it started wearing on me. I think it wore my family and, and so many people. And um, but I was able to keep stumbling along, writing, um, and 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 am now to 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 various degrees of success. So it really didn't. I, I didn't. I, I knew right away that I wouldn't write about it. Now it was too close to me. I've learned a little bit about trying not to write about what's what you're too close to. So it really didn't affect me th- that much. You you were talking to me earlier about getting necessary distance from a project and how in your current project, that's been a, a part of working through it. For me personally, uh, I, I learned from that experience of being in the war in Vietnam that it took some time before I could write about it in an objective way in which I was controlling the writing and rather than the writing and the issue controlling me. In the last five years, I've been involved in what's loosely could loosely be called activism in Wilmington, and I have tried to write about it for the off and on for the last five years, um, and it has not worked because I'm too close to it. I have worked. I've started two novels to try to deal with this experience in in in, in a fictional way, and they both drop dead on me, which is great. And um, because what I've found out, and, and right at this moment, I'm having tremendous success in, in writing about this issue and the way I've chosen to write about it. And I, I usually love to talk about what I'm doing. In this particular case, I'm, I'm a little superstitious uh, because I've talked about these last two things that I've started because I've been enthusiastic and it's been, in, it's, it's been involved in, it's been involved in this activism, but now I've got one going that's really moving. And I've re- and I realized in the last six days that the reason it's moving now is because I've written myself the distance. I have written, I've started those two novels. I have failed in my writing, which has been wonderful to get the distance. 
I, I, I have been mistaken about how it might work in two other novels. And now I'm, I'm working on something else. So I think it, for sure, it, it varies with every, every writer. And anybody who's a writer, I try to send them to the, the, the series of interviews, the Paris Review interviews called Writers at Work. Uh, there are hundreds of them. And the questions are usually geared so that writers, especially if you find your favorite writers, talk about their own process. And you start finding out that what's true for you uh, may not be true for other writers. And, and so you start having to embrace your own notions of what works for you. And that's always dangerous. I mean, if, if that's the way it worked in an airplane, you'd kill yourself right away. <laughs> but if, if, it's, if, it's, if you're talking about art, that's how so many great pieces of art are produced because somebody's trying to figure out what they're doing. And the way they figure it out is everlasting. Um, of course, the failure is more of that. So anyway, just to say that 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 being too close to something uh, for some writers, I'm sure works well. For me, it doesn't. And so how do you get the distance? The two ways I have learned is one, you wait. You, you just wait and mess around and keep trying it a little bit. Or you work real hard on it and you keep working on it really hard and you and you break and you fail. And then you suddenly find yourself in the clear and you hit the vein. And when you hit the vein, you're off. It seems to me that a big part of the success involves your experience as a writer and your honesty with yourself and your ability to see when something's working or it's not working and and to have the uh, you know courage to abandon a project if you feel like it's it's not working in the way you want to and wait wait some time for a new start. Yeah, I think the, I think the older you get, the easier it is to throw away stuff. I mean, I just threw away eighty pages like six days ago, and if I'd been uh, a young writer and I started in my early thirties, if I'd been forty and looking at eighty pages I'd written, uh, no way I'd have thrown it away. It's a precious baby doll. I gotta hold it. But these eighty pages went pretty quickly. Wow! And and, wow. and, it, and that started with uh, my second novel, Lewis Rubin reading my second novel after it was finished and ready to go to press, and he very eloquently just reading through and marking through a sentence now and then, maybe even a short paragraph. And I went back and read it and I said, oh my gosh, how much smoother and better this reads. So I've tried to learn how to do that and it's become much easier. It's very difficult. When I gave my first novel, first draft to my first editor, I said, and I knew she was going to start coming back at me with suggestions. I said, I feel like I'm in the middle of a field with a bare tree full of blackbirds and they're sitting there peacefully and I'm handing you this novel and I'm feeling like that's the same thing as clapping my hands. They're going to all fly away. And how can I recapture all the quote magic end quote that was in that first draft? Uh, and she tried to assure me and I reluctantly became assured and finished it. And right now, uh, you know, not only do you clap your hands, you get a shotgun, you kill them all and start over <laughs> if you need to. It's just not that delicate. It doesn't have to be that delicate. But for some writers, it is that delicate. So I, I'm only speaking for myself and in hopes maybe in some cases of I just had a student. I just had to tell that story to a graduate student who was worried about she's just finished her first draft. And I told her that and I said, my God, you know, of course, you got your all your files in your computer where you save it all. You never throw away a draft. and You can always go back and get it. But I think at least I've found that I don't go back and get stuff all that often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, some of the new work you've been working on recently are some poems, Clyde. 
wonder if you might read one of these poems for us. Sure. I'll just preface this by saying this is another way I got distance, I think, to to working on the, the book I'm working on now, which is going well. And the way I got distance was uh, I, I was talking to Mark Richard, who said he was writing prose poetry. And when he said he was writing prose poetry, I, I, I pictured some of the prose poems I've read, which are just kind of small squares in the middle of a page, indented far from the left, indented far from the right. And I thought to myself, gosh, I think I'll try that. So I invented this little form. I just wrote a line and line one. And then line two, I came back and I didn't write it quite as long. And line three was a shorter and line four was a shorter. And I decided I'm not going to make it over nine lines. So I did that and it was very easy for me to do. And there was a certain amount of pressure to finish what you're doing by the time you get to the ninth line. And because each line is getting shorter, uh, you've got it's, it was a good kind of pressure. And I wrote 30 of these things in no time at all, three a day for 10 days. And that helped me move somehow because it, it, it was like it was oil. It was grease. It, it oiled up the pro- because it, it just happened to work for me. And that led me into the work on now. So I'll, I'll read the second one, which grew out of watching, as most Americans did, uh, what happened January 6th, mm-hmm. January the 6th this year. So here's the, the, the poem um, uh, again, nine lines with each line a little shorter than the other. But I had to go to 10 lines on some. I even went to one, 11 lines. And it's okay to, 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 to be naughty and to not follow your form. <laughs> the terrorists are my people. I see Uncle Floyd, Uncle Forrest. There, there's Jimmy. The terrorists are my people. No, not ain't Clara. Why am I not among them? I am among them. The terrorists are my people, but I am not among them. The terrorists are my people. I know Uncle Floyd's hand. It was big and calloused. The terrorists are my people. It was the hand that loved me. That's the poem. And I was looking over that Mm. poem a while ago to decide whether to change. I know Uncle Floyd's hand. It is big and calloused. The terrorists are my people. It is the hand that loves me. Mm. Whether to have it present tense or Mm. past tense. And while I was trying to decide that, it came to me that was could identify my relationship to the family in a different way than is would. I think it could work either way, but yeah, yeah. So it's kind of interesting to uh, to 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 write those and a and a whole bunch more. And 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 when I look back on some of them, uh, anyway, that that really helped me because I don't think of myself a poet as all as may be obvious, but doing this kind of little prose poem stuff was was fun and great and helped loosen me up as I mentioned earlier. That's a powerful piece of writing. I, you, you had mentioned to me in an email that you feel it resonates with a lot of your novels in this, maybe uh, this, this kind of ambivalence you feel for this deep connection, but at times 
you know, you're, you're struggling to understand certain ideas or attitudes of family members or friends. And I think that's probably something that all of, ha- of us have gone through. And there, it seems to me there's this, this tendency right now in our, in our society to try to neatly divide ourselves into camps. And that feels always fraught to me that it's, uh, this poem speaks to the necessary work of trying to maintain relationships, um, but to work through differences. You're exactly right. And, and, and I think a lot of people have been thinking about that. My students uh, think about it. I'm lucky. I'm really lucky to have uh, uh, 27 students in two classes. Um, and in one class, writing for the public good, we, we talk about this stuff some and write about it. And um, students are dealing w- w- with these things as if they are, I mean, you know, when you're, when you're young, whatever's there seems like it's probably been there forever before. So there's a permanence that, that, that some of us don't feel that seems to f- be true for young people, obviously, clearly, and understandably. So, um, you know, in fact, I was just thinking yesterday, I mean, I think about this a lot because my, I, I was talking yesterday to two uh, conservative friends. I mean, I assume one of them is conservative, the other one I know. And we're, we're on the back of a boat. We're working on a boat engine or they're working on it. I'm watching um, to tell you where I'm coming from. So we're talking. <laughs> we're talking. I've been in that same place. <laughs> I, I, say, I don't know nothing about them hydraulics. <laughs> you boys go ahead and take care of the hydraulics. I'm going to be over here reading a little Shakespeare. But uh, I'm able to talk to these people, and they're able to talk to me, and and I I enjoy I enjoy them. And and my friends I talked to on the phone for for long lengths of time are are often conservative because of past connections and conservative in so many different ways give me a break that whole business of uh, uh of how you're conservative but i was thinking yesterday about wouldn't it be great if um uh, um if 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 there if, if if there were if there was a petition just above your head and you could go into a room with everybody you know and everything that's quote political and that doesn't have to do with what you're eating or the weather or what you like to do or what kind of coffee you like, all that stuff stayed below the ceiling and all the quote political stuff that we call political stuff could go above the ceiling for like 10 minutes just to kind of have that experience. And that was just a little short fantasy I had that that comes out of this experience of, for example, having people watch, the movie Vernon, Florida, my favorite documentary, and from all sorts of walks of life, a, a, a film about a, a bunch of old white men um, in the main, uh, and see what's there for different people. Because I've had people be completely turned off to that film who I thought would love it. And I've had people love it who I thought would be completely turned off because I talk about Vernon, Florida a lot. In fact, I'm going to be writing about Vernon, Florida, I think. Uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a strange film. You gave me that homework, and I haven't done it yet. <laughs> that's on my agenda. We'll have another show. We'll get Landis to watch it. Landis, have you seen that movie? So, Clyde, uh, several several of your novels have been adapted to film. 
rainy walking across Egypt and Killer Diller, which I thought was a wonderful uh, movie adaptation. Your novels have also been adapted to the stage. I've been lucky to see magnificent productions by Charlotte Rep of the Float Plane no- Notebooks and Lunch at the Piccadilly Musical Theater. Um, I was wondering if you might read a passage from your novel, Lunch at the Piccadilly, and then maybe sing a song that was adapted for the stage. And uh, also maybe talk about the experience of, of watching your, your stories and characters uh, take on this new life. Uh, about the question you just asked, it's, 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 it's so, uh, uh, it's such a kind of, out-of-body experience to watch people you dreamed up become touchable and real on stage and say things that you've dreamed up and it's it's a it's a it's a flattering uh wonderful experience that that writers are are able to see and uh, they're, they're not there's not there are not many great analogies other than, I mean, one that's poor is to see your child stand up and walk around. It's a little bit like that. So th- this particular novel, I just will say two quick little things about how this novel came about, if I may. Um, and that is that my aunt went into a nursing home in 18. Oh, <laughs> that was the other aunt. This aunt went into the nursing home in 1996. And I was kind of her soul support and she we were close so when she went in uh it it was one of those experiences i was very close to but i came to see that that i would have to write about it and one of the one of the things that happened that made me know i had to write about it is that i was in her room at the nursing home and i was writing full-time so i didn't have a day job i was in her room one afternoon early in the afternoon um trimming her toenails uh and she had a roommate named Ernestine. And this was, again, early in the afternoon. And I'd go in every few days to see her at different times during the day. And she said to Ernestine, her roommate, my aunt said this. She said, don't you wish you had a nephew who would come and do for you like this one does for me? And Ernestine from across the room kind of crossed her arms and said, I got two nephews. They both work. <laughs> so I immediately said, I got to put that in a book. And uh, so, but, and I began to see, even though it seemed kind of cliche and maybe sentimental and blah, 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 to write a novel about a nursing home. Oh, I saw, I saw courage and suffering and uh, caretaker fatigue and experienced that. And so I had to, I had to write the novel. And so when people found out I was writing about a nursing home, they started telling me nursing home stories, some of which were appropriate and some of which were inappropriate. But the best one, one of the best, they told me is supposed to be true and it's supposed to have been Billy Graham uh, visiting a nursing home. And he was in the lobby talking to an elderly uh, woman and he talked along a while and she just kind of stared at him blankly. And finally he said, do you know who I am? And she said, no, I don't know who you are, but there's a nurse down at the end of the hall that can tell you who you are. (laughs) So those two stories helped me jump into this novel. And in the novel, there is a scene. There are a lot of scenes with three or four women and one or two men, friends, as people become in nursing homes, sitting on the front porch talking. 
there's one scene where a person leaves and that person happens to have a glass eye. And so they start talking about it. That's three people remaining. It's not important to know who, who they are, but so I'll just try to get these voices. And, um, did you say it stays open at night? What? Clara's eye. Does it stay open at night? Do you reckon? I'm sure it does. No, she'd take it out at night. Not if she didn't want to. I've seen them that look more real. They move and everything. It's like they put hers in, but they didn't connect it to any nerves that can turn it. I don't think they connect it to nerves, do they? Well, they connect it to something else that couldn't move around in there right along with the other one. Maybe they, maybe they connect it to muscles. Nerves wouldn't be able to move it, would they? Well, I don't know. They, they connect it to something. I know that. The question is, what do they connect it to? I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Looks like she'd just get a patch. Then she could get rid of the eye. You don't see people with glass eyes under their patches. Who can know? I guess we'll have to look it up in the encyclopedia. That's what they tell you to do in school. I remember doing a report on the presidents, and I found everything I needed in the encyclopedia. They have every president in there at one place or another. Probably under the letter the last name starts with. That's a funny word, encyclopedia. Gymnasium is a funny word, too. There are lots of funny words, if you just think about it. Laboon is a funny word, and it's not even a word. <laughs> okay, that's it. And I'll do the song. So the song. I, 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 I have to say that uh, I, I was reading that book the other night, and I just started laughing. I was in bed. My wife said, what are you laughing at? I just could not stop laughing about the glass eye. So that's, that's why I got in touch with George before. I said, we got to get the glass eye on the show. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, it, what happened is when I was doing the, the, the play, I would w work on the, the dialogue and I'd, I'd given Mike Craver the book to, to come up with songs. And he was coming up with songs left and right. He wrote 20 songs. And somewhere in there, I'd had about three conversations in a row on the porch with him sitting in the chairs. And I love the glass eye conversation I just read. So I said, I said, I said, Mike, I don't want to write this up. Would you do a song? Can you read this scene and make a song out of it? And he did. And this is a song he ended up with. I'll do that. How does a glass eye work? How does a glass eye work? Are the nerves or muscles, special corpuscles that make it go around? How does a glass eye work? What in the world do you do when they're looking at you? And they got the wrong eye. It must be queer. What do you say? Hey, buddy, over here. How does a glass eye work? What do you do with it at night? What do you do with it at night? Do you put it in a case or leave it in your face? You might leave it in if you're the type that sleeps with men. How does a glass eye work? 
What if it rolled out your head? What if it rolled out in bed? Do they make something like polygrip for false eyeballs so the thing won't slip? How does a glass eye work? How does a glass eye work? Yeah, that was that was that was really good. I, I'm going to jump back on here. Uh, this has just been uh, just been a wonderful conversation, uh, George. I want to thank you for leading it. This has been great. Thank you, Lance, and thank you, Clyde. How wonderful sure it's been to talk with you, George. Today. Thank you. Yeah, and, and so what I'm going to do now, listeners, uh, we're going to we're going to jump over because I've got a lot of questions to ask, and uh, Clyde has been very generous with his time and. He's the kind of guy, as you can tell, that uh, he can he can tell the story, and he's going to stay with us a little longer. We're going to go over to our Patreon channel. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. We, we now have close to 60 episodes up there. These are deep dive conversations with authors about uh, their writing lives. So if you want to help support the podcast, I think it's, uh, I don't know if you can, if you count what a Starbucks coffee costs. It probably doesn't cost you as much as that to join for a month. So uh, check that out at uh, patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Hey, thanks, Clyde, for being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Uh, it's been my honor. I hope you can tell that that uh, this has been uh, no fun for me. You had to pull me away from my work, and uh, I hate to do these things. I have to do several a day, and Right. You know, I've had a great time and I, I'm so honored that y'all would think of me and, and I so much appreciate what you're bringing to the world and to Charlotte uh, with, with, with this kind of uh, talking and thinking and enjoying art because embracing uh, art is so important for our culture. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.